0: My guest today, Brian Katoulis, is a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress, where his work focuses on U.S. national security and foreign policy, particularly in the Middle East. He's had a long career working and living in several Middle Eastern countries at key junctions in their history, including Jordan, Israel, Palestine, and Egypt. And we discuss many of these experiences in this conversation. We kick off discussing a new report he helped write about some key challenges facing the next administration as it navigates an ever-evolving political and security landscape in the Middle East. So we recorded this conversation before the elections, and if you're listening to this contemporaneously, about a week before the elections, to be precise. Uh, meanwhile, I've escaped to Quebec where I'm speaking at a conference for the Junior Chamber International in Quebec City, uh, and frankly, I'm looking forward to enjoying a brief respite from the uh, election madness before I return to Colorado. I do, however, have a pretty good election-themed episode later this week that I think you will like very much, so stay tuned. Uh, But for now, here is Brian Katulis of the Center for American Progress. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Eslanyan from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting season four, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube.
1: You've got a story of in essence, a number of proxy conflicts between two of the leading powers, Saudi Arabia and Iran. And a lot of the actions and a lot of the activity that the U.S. gets engaged in is is quite often along those lines um, and responding to some of the concerns of uh, our longstanding partners like Saudi Arabia about our deal with Iran, the nuclear deal, which I think is is one of the best um, accomplishments for the united states we've seen in years in the region the nuclear deal but it has actually uh, created additional tensions and insecurities among some of our traditional partners so uh, this story is already happening right and and you see iran actively supporting certain groups in iraq in syria in yemen and in other places and the the, the latest feature i think is that countries like saudi arabia uh, reacting with their own support of different types of proxy forces, or in some cases, like Yemen, uh, going in directly themselves. Mm-hmm. So so this has been already part of the feature, and I don't see it going away in the next administration.
0: Yeah. It's, it's, uh, mm-hmm. Well, is, is the challenge for the U.S. is that in certain situations, we, uh, see our interest aligned with some of, uh, or at least temporarily aligned with some of Iran's proxies. For example, you know, on, in the battle for, for Mosul right now, you know, they're kind of on the same side as, as us. But, um, at the same time, you know, we also, in some situations, also find ourselves, um, aligned or the interest aligned with some of Saudi's proxies, like in, 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 uh, in, in Syria. Um, So it's, you know, the U.S. is sort of not neatly behind any one of these countries at any given time.
1: Well, I think that's right. And I think a bigger challenge is that, uh, especially under President Obama, there's been an inclination to try to stay above the fray in this uh, conflict uh, between Iran and Saudi Arabia and really not pick sides for fear that the uh, fragmentation of certain nation states that we've seen happening is a result of Uh, Both of these countries and then the forces that they support going after each other. Um, But I think if there's still an enduring lean or inclination in U.S. policy, it is most certainly not towards Iran. I mean, and I think this is a a misperception after the nuclear agreement that some people had that somehow the nuclear agreement um, that the U.S. has with P5 plus one with Iran would open the door to a new equilibrium and Iran uh, being able to share the region with some of our longstanding partners. And, and if you look at it a year, uh, a little bit more than a year after the signing of the nuclear deal, we're no closer to that, and I would argue in some cases we're further away from that, in part because Iran has not tempered its actions. And even the support um, that it provides to different groups like the PMF, the Popular Mobilization Forces inside of Iraq, um, yes, in the short run, it may be helpful – to our interest in defeating ISIS. But in the long run, I think it actually may have a deleterious effect uh, to the long-term goal of having Iraq stay together cohesively, uh, one in which Sunni communities, other communities feel like they they have a stake. So I, I think still on balance is, as troubling the actions of Saudi Arabia have been in places like Yemen, uh, on balance, I think we're still slightly more strategically aligned uh, with, with that side of the equation as opposed to uh, Iran but but I think President Obama has quite understandably tried to stay above the fray on on a lot of this.
0: Mm-hmm. And and I think it's probably fair to say that, you know, should Hillary Clinton be elected, I mean her inclination is, you know, less to stay above the fray, the, the fray and, and more to um you know be be more I think deeply involved in ways that Obama had not. Um, so I, I wondered. I mean, do you do you agree with that assessment? I know that's sort of like the the sort of the the popular assessment of her. Um, one, do you do you agree with that? Two, of how do you see then sort of the U.S. relationship with with Saudi Arabia evolving under a Hillary presidency?
1: I think it's a fair assessment, but I, I wouldn't take it as a given or for granted because a lot can happen between now and then. Um, but but certainly, if you look at just her. Her posture as Secretary of State, and then her memoirs—how she described it. Um, she does have an inclination of trying to work things um, more quietly with some of these longstanding partners, trying to develop a better understanding. Um, I suspect that if she's elected, um, you're you're going you're not going to see a series of high-profile speeches um, in the way that. Uh, she did listening tours as secretary of state or President Obama certainly went out into the world in the first year and gave speeches in Turkey and Cairo and other places. I suspect what you're likely to, more likely to see is sort of a continuation of what Obama does with uh, the anti-ISL coalition, you know, behind closed doors, trying to 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 work things through uh, with, with these longstanding partners. And uh, that's why I, th- I think she'll, she'll be inclined to double down on engagement with with some of the these partners, because of the trust deficit that has emerged, but doubling down, I don't think would mean just you know a full warm embrace. I think that there's got to be some tough talk there. Um, mm-hmm. But but the main point is the reason why I think she's likely to do that is that every statement she makes, especially about fighting ISIS, uh, she has this concept of working with partners in the region that you got to work with with these partners and through them, um, and not that President Obama doesn't do that. But he has taken certain steps, especially in the last year and especially in some of his public statements, like the interview with Jeffrey Goldberg, where he talks about free riding allies yes. in the region. And and, and and quite frankly, I mean, that may be, you know, whatever the validity of that statement is, having the president of the United States say say that has actually, I think, contributed to the two-way trust deficit that that exists.
0: Um, it also seems you know politically here or domestically you know on on uh, a you know President Clinton's left flank on on Middle East policy are people like Chris Murphy um, you know the, the senator from Connecticut who's been on this show actually to talk about this very issue of of sort of trying to restrict um, the sort of the u s arms sales to Saudi Arabia principally over its. Um, conduct in Yemen. But more broadly, I mean, he, he made the point that, you know, when he voted for the Iran deal, he didn't vote to give, you know, endless amounts of, of supplies of arms to U.S. allies in, in the Gulf. And I wonder like how, you know, how President Clinton would, would sort of thread that needle.
1: Um, I actually think it's quite compatible with an approach that she might use. And I think the concerns that uh, Senator Murphy raises, I think, are quite valid and very important to raise in in the discussion. Um, and I think one shortcoming in, o, in the Obama administration's approach after the Iran nuclear deal, which which again, I think has been uh, probably one of his top achievements and really important because it helped us avoid uh, another broader war uh, and, and it's cut off Iran's pathway to a nuclear weapon. But one of the, uh, in the follow-up and the aftermath of it, um, we had Obama administration officials Uh, talking about things like record weapon sales to countries like Saudi Arabia as reassurance for the Iran nuclear deal. I I think that was a mistake. I think um, we should be confident that the Iran nuclear deal is is in our interest and in our partners' uh, interest as well, and that any weapon sales should be done in a context of starting a conversation about what are we going to do to actually – uh, stabilize the region in the long run. And that's the conversation I think that's been missing. We called our report leveraging U.S. power in the region because, mm-hmm. in essence, I think we the U.S. has a lot of unique leverage and assets that other countries don't have uh, with countries in the region. Um, and we don't use it. We we often don't use it. And simply framing, you know, weapon sales to Saudi Arabia, I think, as the Obama administration has, as reassurance for the Iran nuclear deal misses an opportunity to exercise some leverage on how they're executing the campaign in Yemen and whether what they're doing operationally and tactically is ad- actually stitched together into a cohesive framework that leads to long-term stability, which is the shared goal. Um, I don't think it's happening. And that's where I think voices like Senator Murphy's and the issues that he's raising are very important. And and threading the needle, I think, is quite easy, is that you integrate those concerns which many people have about what our partners are doing, but you, you don't just uh, wait 18 months in the way that I think the Obama administration did to finally do a review about what Saudi Arabia is doing in Yemen. They just announced this in the aftermath of a, a major attack mm-hmm. uh, that killed many at a funeral in Yemen. Um, I think some of us in the think tank community were wondering where where was this review yeah. before because this was not the first instance in which you know you had a lot of uh, civilian deaths as a result of the use of these weapons.
0: Um, so you know you mentioned earlier that the the Iran nuclear deal was never really meant as as a pathway for you know a broader rapprochement with with Iran. It was you know pretty narrowly constructed to um, to, to stop their nuclear uh, program. But I'm I'm wondering if there's anything that the U.S. can or should do to encourage sort of warmer relationships and, and broader cooperation with uh, Iran, which, you know, like it or not, is, is obviously a very key player in the region.
1: Like, yeah, what, I mean, what onus
0: think, is on the U.S. here?
1: I, I think, um, first, I think, you know, we've actually done a lot with some of the other countries in the region, like the summits that President Obama has gathered at Camp David with the GCC countries and tried to th- map out you know a, a set of things that we can do to help reassure them about their security beyond weapon sales you know increase co- cooperation and other things but with your uh, your question of iran i'm not certain that we've done a similar um sort of set of discussions about the concerns that many people have about their destabilizing uh, behavior uh, throughout the region and um their support for different types of groups so and again, I, I think it's probably more productive to do this, not in congressional resolutions and publicly, but then privately. Uh, the thing that we have now that we didn't before Obama came into office has been a viable channel with Iranians that, that is used quite regularly. And they're invited to a number of different forums. And I think just trying to have more candid discussions about how we we view their behavior in the region and how how others do as well, and per, perhaps Using those discussions to get to some um, uh, uh, measures that both Iran and then some of the GCC states could take to to, if not build confidence, at least uh, uh, you know reduce the trust gap that exists between them. Mm-hmm. Uh, easier said than done. I think it's likely that it's going to take years to do that. But the main point is, you know, rather than just the full implementation of the Iran nuclear deal and making sure that. Um, they get f- financially what they were expecting, and that those resources are used uh, in the in a way that helps Iran. Also, trying to think longer term about what can be done to help reduce uh, security tensions across the region. That 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 in essence, the U.S. since nineteen the nineteen eighties has been a security guarantor um, for for parts of the region and our allies in the Gulf. But if we could help create a new framework where there's a more self-sustaining security framework long way off i think given the tensions between iran and saudi arabia these days but it it's not impossible you know if you think about things in a in a 10-year time frame
0: well it'll be interesting to see how how this evolves in the coming you know in the next administration which you know i'm I'm assuming it'll be it'll be Hillary. so i think we're it'll just kind of be interesting to see the the kind of how this evolves going forward
1: we'll see we've got 10 more days to go and breaking news every day (laughs) yeah
0: anyway i I, i'm speaking to you to get a break from that yeah (laughs) um so so uh, you're someone who's been on my radar for for a while Um, i've been following you on social media i've been following your work at, at cap and i would love to learn a little bit more about you and and where you come from and how you got into this line of work so where are you from
1: I'm uh, from. I grew up in Hershey, Pennsylvania, in central Pennsylvania, and I got interested in um, international affairs uh, in the late '80s, early '90s, in a period of transformation in, in the global landscape, and really got interested in the Middle East in the first Persian Gulf War when I was at mm-hmm. Villanova University.
0: So you're in college and during the first, uh, first yeah, Gulf War.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I went my first plane ride in my life. Um, I never flew. In my life until I was 20, and it was to go to uh, Cairo to study in my junior year abroad at the American University in Cairo.
0: And what year so was this, that? Uh, it was
1: 1993. So it was an, just a mind-blowing experience where one thing leads to another. You know, I grew up in, in pretty much a small town and didn't see much of the world. Read about it a lot, and just went out there, and it—it it sort of. Uh, expanded my horizons tremendously. So one thing led to another. I had a Fulbright yeah. scholarship so, in so Jordan. So let, yeah. let, let,
0: let's go back. Let's 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 learn about that that first Egypt trip. So your very first plane ride, you land in in Cairo. You had obviously <laughs> never even been out of the country. Uh, maybe you yeah. went to Canada or something, but no, 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 not even to Canada. So your your first <laughs> no. experience is, is Cairo in 1993. Like yeah. what? Like what are some of like your first memories and your first sort of when you realize that that you're in a totally different atmosphere, a totally different place. Oh,
1: just the craziness. I don't know if you've been to Cairo, but coming out of the airport and just getting into the traffic, getting into a cab and how there really isn't, uh, there weren't really any lanes. It's, it's kind of like today's Middle East. Nobody stays in their own lane and everybody's going in their own different direction, but it still kind of hangs together. And, um, it just it, Egypt back then compared to Egypt today. Felt like a warmer, more welcoming place. Like I go, I went to Egypt a couple of times this year for our research, and it, you know, um, Egyptians were just friendly, welcoming, and despite you know the longstanding concerns many in the Arab world had about you have about U.S. policy, um, there was an openness and a welcoming there that I just felt like I connected with. And the culture was was, was really something that I think helped expand my horizons and help understand. Uh, the world from a different perspective
0: so why why the middle east why sort of study arabic of you know of all the places if you're someone interested in the world you know what was it about middle eastern studies that um attracted you to it
1: well some of it is just happenstance i was at uh villanova which has a great arab and islamic studies program and when saddam hussein invaded kuwait in 1990 um in my freshman year i remember Uh, After doing my homework, watching Ted Koppel on Nightline talk about the buildup of U.S. forces and the other coalition that, you know, the other countries that joined the coalition Mm -hmm. in the region. And Villanova happened to have a series of speakers come from the Middle East at that time, you know, after our speakers in different conferences. And I went to it and I thought, wow, this is a fascinating part of the world and this was, you know, long before bin Laden and terror, you know, terrorism was on the radar screen, but not in the way that it dominates U.S. policy now and, and our national dialogue. And I, I thought, well, this is interesting. You know, I, I considered China. I considered uh, other parts of the world uh, when the Berlin Wall fell. I was looking at Eastern and Central Europe. But then when the Gulf War happened and then everything around it and that year after the Gulf War, seeing what uh, George H.W. Bush's administration did in reaction uh, to it that not only did they extricate Iraq from Kuwait, there was a momentum and a push towards um, a peace conference and attempt at in Madrid mm-hmm. and all sorts of things that I think, you know, there was a bit more of a proactive forward looking approach as opposed to where I think we are today, which is d- deeply reactive to events and not not driving things to a longer term horizon not making
0: the weather, as they say. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, so how long did you spend in Egypt?
1: I only spent a few months that first time, but then I went back. Uh, so I was there for like six months, but then I went back, um, to work, uh, 1998 with the national democratic Institute and then have been back regularly and did projects on the ground. But I lived, I lived there in 1993, 1998
0: and And so you um went back to to Villanova or went back to do graduate work, or what did you do after?
1: I went to I went back to Villanova. my first job after Villanovas I worked for the Governor of Pennsylvania, Bob Casey at the time. And I mean, at that point, and I still think my career uh, I, I think I sort of gravitate to three different areas. one is general u s. foreign policy. two is obviously the Middle East, and then three is I'm a Democrat and democratic policy and politics. So I did a bit of um, time in the state government in the governor's office in Pennsylvania, uh, and that was just a few months before I went on the Fulbright to uh, Jordan, and I landed in Jordan uh, just a few weeks before the peace treaty between Jordan okay. and Israel was so, signed. So that in was 1994.
0: 1994. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. you were there. You were there during the the peace treaty signing.
1: Yeah. Well, I was actually. Uh, um, I was. They had all the Fulbright scholars serve as escorts to the presidential. Ah. Um team the the press that was following president clinton around so and i remember um you know going into the jordanian parliament which i believe is the first time a, pre- a us president addressed a, a an arab parliament and seeing president clinton give a speech um the 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 evening of the peace uh, signing so the signing had been in the morning and i'd been there i stayed there the whole year my project was looking at how was jordan um debating peace with israel how was is it debating normalization and how was it absorbing you know the these seismic changes i mean um what did you
0: what the, did you conclude how, like how, how was it how did it do that those well
1: things? it's interesting when you compare it to how egypt um made peace and there really was no societal debate permitted and no vote on it uh, king hussein uh, the leader of jordan at the time uh, essentially had gerrymandered parliamentary elections and their parliament, you know, never doesn't really have any power compared to the monarchy, but he allowed um, different political forces, Islamists and others to come out and, and, and rail against the treaty. Um, there was pub press coverage about that debate. And even though it was sort of controlled uh, from above, obviously allowing that to happen, which frankly is something that didn't happen. I, 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 uh, with the PLO, you know, there wasn't much of a permission of a public debate about the interim peace deals and things like this. I thought it was quite healthy to do. Um, um it didn't, you know, so it Jordan, I think, for a variety of reasons, has has had warmer and closer relationship with Israel than Egypt ever had. Mm-hmm. But I think there was something stabilizing in that fact of uh, you know, a, a leader being able to feel comfortable to at least have a managed debate about the pros and cons of of peace. Is it?
0: I, I may be misremembering this, but but is it that Jordan gave up its claim to the West Bank uh, to basically to the PLO, uh, and then sort of that kind of set the conditions in with in which Jordan and Israel could negotiate a, a peace treaty that included you know like a freedom of travel uh, and and sort of other security guarantees, right?
1: Yeah, that's part of it. And one thing that I think people forget is that the Jordan Israel peace treaty of 94 actually still to this day gives uh the Hashemite monarchy of Jordan special um oversight of the holy sites, the Muslim holy sites mm-hmm. in in Jerusalem. Um and and this this people are reminded of this every time there's sort of a flare up and when extremists um whether it's Jewish extremists or or Muslim extremists try to make an issue of this, um Who you see sort of commenting more on this aren't the Palestinian leaders today. I mean, they're concerned about it, but the, the technical authority and control of the Muslim holy sites. Mm-hmm. Um, to a large degree, is is still in Jordan's hands.
0: So, uh, were you there at the signing ceremony? Which is what I think it took place at like a border town. Is is that right? Like on on the Israeli Jordanian no. border?
1: Yeah, I was. Yeah, the, it was in the south of Jordan. So I, I stayed in Amman and just basically escorted mm-hmm. the press that f- uh, flew in with yeah. the president um, and, and I around it was Amman. Like
0: like uh, it was it was Perez and and it was the King of Jordan, right? And, and Bill Clinton standing behind them.
1: Um. Yeah. I, well, I think Rabin was there Rabin, as well. Was Rabin, but, okay. Yeah. Rabin, Rabin was still, yeah, yeah. And, and it was in the desert. So basically, and I, and I actually remember talking to the press, uh, core, uh, traveling with the president. And I, I've had friends, uh, who I work with at CAP go into the white house to work with president Obama. But the, but the hours that these presidents and the people around them and the staff keep on these trips, um, the basically, uh, president Clinton flew to Cairo, um, And got in, I think, after midnight, the one night. And then by 8 or 9 a.m., the same day, they're at the peace signing. Mm -hmm. And then later that evening, they're in Jordan, and he's giving a speech at the parliament. And then they got up at 3 a.m. and flew to Damascus to go see Assad. So you remember, this is the time also when the Clinton administration and and then Secretary of State uh, Warren Christopher we're going to see Hafiz al-Assad yeah. at the time and then then i think they 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 either ended their day in in Jerusalem they flew directly from Damascus or or it was the next day so it's these people think that like you know Sometimes these leaders are just flying in the lap of luxury, but I think like sleep deprivation.
0: (laughs) No, well, it's Bill. I mean, it's Bill Clinton too. I mean, that that guy is he he operates on (laughs) on another level. I once went to Ethiopia, Rwanda, Liberia, Senegal, and Mexico City with him in like three days. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) I mean, it's just like insane. And uh, And this after he was president. Yeah, this was this was after he was president. I mean, it's just like it's it's just nuts. I mean, and and. Um, I think that that's him as as a, as a personality too. He seemed, yeah. to, you know, he was he seemed to require less sleep than the rest of us. Yeah, um, no, that's right. <laughs> anyway, um, so you uh, you spent so you obviously uh, spent uh, what about a full a whole year doing the Fulbright in Jordan?
1: Yeah, a whole year, and then um, while I was out there, I was I was doing the Fulbright with the intent of going to get a PhD, you know, in political science. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I learned was that I I really wanted to do something that was a bit uh, less academic and more related to policy. Yes. Good, good. Yeah. And, and I was, I was interested, frankly, I mean, long before the freedom agenda and democracy was a gleam in George W. Bush's eye, there was a lot of talk in the 1990s about, you know, um, political change in the Middle East and other things. So towards the end of my Fulbright, I reached out to the Carter Center. Um, I wrote a letter, uh, to Jimmy Carter and basically said, "Hey, I've been reading about Palestinian elections coming up. I'm really interested in Palestine and uh what might be possible there and I'd love to join your team." And they basically sent me back a form letter, like a fundraising letter, and I was so de- dejected and disappointed. But the day I got that letter in the Fulbright office in Jordan, out of the blue, uh, uh, somebody I didn't know called me from a group called the National Democratic Institute, NDI. And NDI does political development programs, usually funded by USAID or National Endowment for Democracy. And it's just, this is how life I think sometimes works. You knock on a door, it doesn't open, another one opens. And NDI was looking for help for programs that they were trying to do in Jordan. And I became friends with one of the guys who's now one of my uh, longest standing friends. And they introduced me to the NDI office in Jerusalem, which ended up being the office that helped organize the Carter Center <laughs> election monitoring mm-hmm. delegation. So uh, that's a long winded way of saying, you know, especially for those uh, in your audience who may be younger, who are still trying to sort out like where you're going and things like this. If you've got an instinct, you know, knock on as many doors as possible, because I did end up landing a job working on the first Palestinian elections in early 1996. And, working with um you know president carter and his team and for somebody who had studied middle east diplomacy and recent history just to meet like a lot of the people who were part of carter's national security council and state department and others it was like meeting some of my heroes you know and, like
0: who 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 do you mean you know
1: you, you know people like um uh, uh bill Quant um was on the delegation uh, people like that who um I, I just read about and everything that they had done when they were part of the, the different shuttles um, to try to put together peace between the Israelis and Egyptians. And here I am in 1996 uh, meeting these people who were, you know, still either at think tanks or academic or uh, intellectually involved. And it was just it was just a really interesting time and a hopeful time. Yeah, it was still the uh, like, hopeful
0: time. And, and, and particularly in, in that part of the world in, in Israel, and Palestine, 1996 was like almost the high point of, of hope.
1: Yeah, well, and what, what's interesting is you tr- you remember these things um, in, in certain swaths like that. But yes, it was there was more hope, but then there was also rumblings of some really ugly, and dangerous things on the horizons. This was a few months after Yitzhak Rabin had been killed by a Jewish extremist who had a certain view of how things should go. Um, it was also the time I remember. Um, there were the start of suicide bombings by Hamas that were killing innocent um, Israelis, and uh, I, I think like it was around the same time that uh, the the leader of Hamas, or, or no, one of the bomb makers of Hamas, uh, had been killed uh, in an assassination by the Israelis. Right, right. I think around the eve of the elections, so there was hope and people were looking to the future. But then there were these rumblings of, you know, a lot of the problems that then. Uh, continued to sort of boil over, and and then a few years later, turn into the into a second intifada.
0: Uh, how long did you stay in in Israel and Palestine?
1: <clears throat> um, I still I stayed, um, and I actually lived. It was interesting because we worked in East Jerusalem, but most of our programs were in the West Bank. So I moved to Ramallah. I was the first uh, staff member to move to Ramallah, which there's some security concerns, and then uh, spent half my time in Gaza. And I was there from '96 to. Uh, 98, till about nine, early 1998. Um, and we were doing, you know, interesting different types of programs, which I don't think ha- can even happen today because some of the institutions are just defunct, like the Palestinian Legislative Council. And people forget about this experience where there was, a, there was an elected uh, parliament and Yasser Arafat was elected as president. And what we concluded in our report was that those were reasonably fair and open elections and competition. But more importantly... There was actually a serious debate going on inside of um, Palestinian society and reflected in the parliament. And even members of Arafat's uh, political faction uh, party, Fatah, were challenging him on certain issues. And, and I, you know, I'll always remember this is that from my perspective, limited perspective and very young at NDI, that the U.S. diplomats that were engaging uh, Israelis and Palestinians at that time, were really concerned about getting to the next interim agreement and to a final peace deal, but they weren't paying as much attention to the, the fabric of Palestinian society and the potential that existed there, potential that I think was, was, was squandered uh, by the Palestinian leadership themselves, that issues such as corruption and – um, you know, just sharing of power and building institutions, which sound mundane and sound like, you know, it's unstrategic and just development assistance. I actually think we're, we're sort of really, uh, placed on such a lower priority compared to trying to drive for towards a peace deal. And I thought it was unfortunate, you know, it was, it was one of these instances where, um, that long-term work where there was a real opportunity, um, was 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 a lower priority.
0: Yeah, one of many missed opportunities. I would say, probably yeah. in the region, in um, an endless list. Someone should just create yeah. like a giant listicle sometimes of every yeah. single missed opportunity in Arab-Israeli peace process. Yeah, take up take up a, a volume, uh, an encyclopedic volume. Um, so, uh, did you end up ever working for the the Clinton administration?
1: Yeah, I was in a junior staff position in two places. I worked. <laughs> in 1999 um, in the uh, National Security Council um, in the Near East and South Asian Directorate. And it was interesting when you go over there today and the, the whole institution there is is quite much larger. Uh, I think there was like six or seven people entirely in the directorate dealing with the part of the world from India to Morocco. Um, and it was headed by, At the time, Bruce Rydell, who's now a senior fellow at at Brookings, and I worked with people like uh, Rob Malley, who's Mm -hmm. who's back in there at the White House as the senior director and Ken Pollack and a few others. So I got some experience there. It was very much, you know, like a low level um, position. And then what were some of the issues
0: you were doing at at, at that time that you were dealing Uh, with?
1: It it was a mix mix of issues. Like, look, um, one was. India, Pakistan, because India and Pakistan, um, there was a huge flare up on the line of control. So that director was handling it. So I was assisting the director on that. I remember there was a debate about what was happening with um, uh, the Sinai presence, the multinational force in Sinai. So I would be pulled in to different meetings, but like note taker, you know, um, and things like this. So it wasn't uh, a decisive position. And and the thing that I took away from it was that wow these people who sit in these positions especially at the interagency and National Security Council their job in essence is is kind of like being an appeals court uh, between different agencies of the U.S. Mm-hmm. government State Department versus DoD but they're they're an appeals court that some that doesn't really have as much power to to, to enforce its ruling sometimes um,
0: so so you should ex- probably explain that to people who aren't so familiar with the interagency process basically. Um, you know, you you have these kind of debates that get kicked up in each um in each agency, whether it's the State Department or Defense Department. And at some point, you know, someone the president needs to make a decision. So you get you know top representatives from the State Department, Pentagon, um, you know, whoever uh, is has an equity uh, to yes. to sort of debate the issue, and then the hopefully that the president makes the uh, makes the final decision. But the the process in which they debate the issue is called the interagency inter- process and the National Security Council, at least. In the Clinton administration is was sort of the referee there.
1: Yeah, um, that's right. And you know they have various levels of this, and I was operating at the the, the junior level. And oftentimes, what you're doing then is just making sure the paperwork's in order uh, for various meetings. But you know, um, so many of the different national security agencies, whether it's the Pentagon, State Department, CIA, um, and and in other instances, sometimes Treasury comes in they all have different perspectives on specific issues. Mm -hmm. And it's the job of the national security advisor to, uh, in essence, mediate these positions and present sort of a unified position to to the president so that he can make decisions. So um, so I had a bit of experience there. And then I got a job um, in the policy planning staff at the State Department under Secretary Albright at the time. Um, And that's where, I mean, this is one bit of, uh, advice for folks, as well as that. Although I spent a good bit of my career on the Middle East, when I was at policy planning, my focus uh, there at policy planning at the State Department was was working on a uh, something related to the Kosovo War. Um, and in essence, I mean, I was working with a small team that was looking at the after-action lessons learned on the diplomacy surrounding Kosovo. A similar study had been done about. Um, Uh, the Dayton process that ended the war in Bosnia. And um, it was really an eye-opening experience to sort of interview the diplomats and do an internal study at the State Department. The the policy planning staff at State has had various functions, but it's in essence like an internal think tank Mm -hmm. and offering different advice. So um, (coughs) I did that while I was at Princeton uh, getting my graduate degree. So I was coming down from New Jersey and spending about half my week um, at Foggy Bottom at the State Department. And, I, you know, it, it was a really great experience for me because part of my goal was to try to uh, broaden my horizons a bit and try to understand other parts of the world. Um, and I learned a lot and I looked it's especially at the issue of how the U.S. engaged the Kosovo Liberation Army, uh, the KLA, and mm-hmm. how you do diplomacy with non-state actors like that.
0: Um, so how did you, uh, after the, the Clinton administration uh, ended and, and sort of the Bush administration came came in and, no, you know, in 2002, 2003, they're gearing up for the war in, in Iraq, how did you in, engage in, in that debate? Now well, that I was working
1: av- – yeah. yeah, I was working at the time at a, a political consulting firm um, that was doing interna- <clears throat> international races um, headed by Stan Greenberg, and uh, most of my work – did not involve that. say, police. he's like
0: a really famous pollster um, in the United States and, and yeah. around the world. Yeah. yeah, an And, and state, you yeah. know, he,
1: he was, he was Al Gore's pollster in the presidential campaign. So I played um, a, a minor role in that as a senior analyst. Um, but most of our work were, was for uh, global leaders like Ehud Barak in Israel, Tony Blair in Britain and number of leaders from Latin America to Europe and everywhere. And Basically my my job had really taken me except for the uh, limited work on Israel had taken me so far away from the Middle East um and and I felt like I was losing my connection there and when the debate on the Iraq war happened in 2002 2003 um and debate you know the debate before the Iraq war in March of 2003 I found it deeply disconcerting I thought um um a lot of people didn't know what they were talking about when they were talking about how we're going to create tsunamis of democracy that would help us defeat, you know, this latest wave of terrorism. And I just felt like I needed somehow to get back into the Middle East, because part of the reason why I did what I did in the 1990s when I started my career was to have some connection of uh Uh, what I was doing to the reality of like what was happening out there. So I was against the Iraq war. But when it happened, I decided to just step down from a job at Greenberg. And I went back with NDI and Mm. went into Iraq in the late spring, early summer. Um, And the National Democratic Institute was doing uh, work at trying to understand what was going on inside of Iraqi society and help set up some of the programming uh, related to uh, political reform and political party building and civil society building. So
0: this just like the uh, time of the, the coalition provisional authority, probably.
1: Yeah. And one of the, my most favorite reports I ever did, and I, I think back to it, and it's one of the reasons why I got attracted to the think tank life was <coughs> um, I, sp- I spent several months in Iraq uh, right after the CPA was set up. With NDI, and I helped build a research team with Iraqis to understand what Iraqis were thinking about the what was going on. You know, what sort of political system they wanted. What how did they view the CPA? How did they view the U.S. efforts? And that experience really helped me form uh, a clear idea that first, the presence and large presence of U.S. troops inside of Iraq was doing more harm than good. And this was back in 2003. And then second, um, the expectations of Iraqis were so high that there was no never any way for us to really meet them. And then third, they actually thought that we were controlling and doing everything so that things that were so obviously screw ups on the part of the CPA and the United States were viewed as intentional um, by many in Iraq. And, you know, all of the efforts and many of them ham handed of trying to execute a political transition. And I remember the ideas introduced by CPA of caucuses, you know, like we have Iowa caucuses um, and Iraqis barely understanding. Yeah, I don't even understand how our caucus system works. Yeah. So so trying to impose these ideas, I think, while we had such a large military footprint. Um, I, I took away from me and came out of Iraq thinking that we probably needed to get out of there quicker Militarily, than than most people were assuming.
0: Did did you think that you were doing more harm than good at any point?
1: Um, in my in our work, yeah. Um, I I so my job was mostly I didn't do any of these trainings. Uh, my job was to purely try to understand what Iraqis were thinking, and um, I I feel like that's value that was value added because the report that we did and I wrote a Washington Post op ed with a colleague of mine. Um, In the summer of 2003, I felt like we were raising red flags that in essence, the message we were trying to send back to the D.C. policy community is that what it's now everybody knows this, but we didn't know the CPA didn't know what the heck it was doing. Right. That um, they didn't really understand how Iraqis were perceiving them or how it was going forward. So I I felt like in my own limited uh, way, I think it was. It was value added. Um, and I, I, I didn't do, like, I didn't stay on with NDI. I only mm-hmm. did that, you know, for a few months in 03 and then uh, came back and then did a series of projects with Freedom House, a different NGO across the region that was doing a similar sort of thing, trying to understand how people around the region, um, were, were viewing this freedom agenda and, um, what the U.S. was trying to promote. And if I I look back on those reports and I think, you know, the the biggest thing I took away from the experience in Iraq and then the research I did in Morocco, Egypt, Kuwait, um, a few other places, Bangladesh, was that uh, the biggest lesson was humility, that the U.S. actually um, is, is an important factor and can shape and influence things, but that particularly by 2004, 2005, we really needed to understand the limits of our ability to, to shape things. And that sometimes even if it was with good intent, we were trying to promote freedom and democracy, the way we were going about doing it was actually undermining that process. And if you look back on it.
0: <clears throat> was there a um, moment I should say that where you was that crystallized that, that um, idea for you? Was there like a conversation or an experience that, that sort of really hammered that home?
1: Well, I think it's some of the conversations I had in Iraq where it's the most extreme case, but back in 2003, where uh, even just asking people how they felt about different words like freedom, um, which were being used in the propaganda of the Bush administration to describe what we were doing. um, uh, Many Iraqis interpreted that as uh, licentiousness or a degradation of their values and other things. And I think... um, um, that helped crystallize it. I think the experiences, uh, and, and again, I, I should be clear. I don't. I don't mean that the U.S. shouldn't try to do these things. And certainly, in this most recent report, I, I think we find a nuanced way to say that yes, the U.S. should have, especially through non-governmental actors, uh, its voice in this in this place. But um, I think it's especially when the U.S. agenda in this previous decade under the Bush administration, when it was perceived to uh the promotion of freedom was was not only perceived, it was touted in US strategic communications as the thing that was gonna defeat terrorism. Um it was seen as as something that was instrumental in 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 our interests, but not necessarily producing the results of that, that society wanted. So um so it really became, I think, uh if not skeptical, just more humble about we 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 often sort of uh, have effects that are just unpredictable and and can't can't really control.
0: And and I suppose what's next for you now is try to figure out the the effect of of this U.S. election on Middle East policy.
1: Yeah, well, um, right now, um, what's most present in my mind actually, I was thinking about this is uh, you know Middle East policy. But I've written a lot more broadly about U.S. foreign policy. I did a book in two thousand and eight, and I think. Um in addition to sort of what's next for u.s uh, policy in the Middle East, i'm deeply concerned about the types of debates we can have here at home about us engagement in the world. Um, that in the last I've been with this Center for American Progress for more than a decade, and then the how we debate America debates foreign policy has dramatically shifted, and there's been a fracturing and fragmentation, obviously on the Republican side uh, that's crystal clear. but there's also divisions on the democratic side. And I think there's written about this crisis of purpose and U.S. foreign policy writ large, let alone the Middle East, that quite understandably, there are new there's new generations. There's a millennial generation that is just deeply skeptical. And I I don't think any of the leaders that we've seen in recent years, George W. Bush, President Obama, um, and I think even the current candidates uh, for president um, have have articulated an agenda for for US foreign policy or global engagement that, that can bring bring the p- country together, you know. And maybe that was never the case throughout the history, but I think there was a c- more clearly discernible framework for why the US was involved in the world that, uh, you know, through much of the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. Um, and then it just got less clear uh, throughout time. And I think we have a population that is more deeply skeptical about why does any of this matter? Mm-hmm. And, and president Obama, I think reflects that skepticism, but nobody's articulated a vision for, okay, where do we go forward?
0: Yeah. I was at this Joe Biden speech the other day and he, you know, he made a very similar point saying that, you know, the sustaining a liberal international order requires an informed electorate here in the United States.
1: That's right. And you look at the things that I actually think, Again, moving beyond the Middle East, but including it, I think President Obama has done, I think, some important things and has had achievements in foreign policy like the Iran nuclear agreement, the climate agreement in Paris. Um, But if you look at the way that he's articulated that and even Joe Biden himself, Joe Biden had an article in Foreign Affairs at the end of the summer that nobody read, but it really didn't portray, I think, a compelling argument as compelling an argument that they could have made uh, about their own record. Um, So so in a sense, I mean, to have the sitting vice president make that critique, he's he's in a sense, I think, criticizing himself in a sense. If you look at uh, President Obama's interview with Jeffrey Goldberg in the spring in The Atlantic that everybody read uh, about the Obama doctrine, um, my take on that was that his doctrine was largely defined by things they wouldn't do and the restraint and his he, he was defining his agenda in large part in how he dealt with the inheritance he got from the Bush administration. But th- that that avoided what I think is the, the central challenge, which is telling different constituencies in America, this is why either the Middle East matters or Syria matters or all of these other things matter. And that's where I think we wonks in the think, think tank community, we sometimes miss that uh, element um, um, of making sure that we're just not talking to each other but also trying to communicate to wider audiences and, and get their reactions to things.
0: Uh, well, Brian, thank you so much for your time. This was this was great.
1: Great. Good talking to you, Mark.
0: All right. Thank you all for listening. That was interesting and fun. You know, we, we dwelled on the 90s, but hey, I, I suppose in, in many ways I'm, although born in the 80s, very much a product of the 90s. So, you know not a a bad era upon which to dwell. All right. We'll see you next time and stay tuned uh, for some election coverage. We'll see. All right. Thanks guys. Bye.